Amen. Well, thank you so much for helping us this morning, guys. We'll bring you back at the end, Simon and Viano and Sean, and I'm just going to head over and switch cameras here and welcome you again this morning to our stream. We are broadcasting live here from Institut Biblique du Québec in the city of Longueuil. So grateful for the relationship we have with our district and our Bible college. They're actually in the same building. So we're glad to be here. And uh, just thank you so much to the team who's who's here. It's so hard to do you know, music and preaching and everything, and there's no quote-unquote audience in, in person. But uh, you are online, and I'm looking into a little camera with a blue light on it, so I'm thinking of your faces uh, as, I'm, as I'm speaking here, and would remind you again to hit that share button on your screen there. If you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, you can do that. Uh, on our website, you can see it, but you can't share it from there. But you can watch on our website at citypointchurch.ca slash connect slash sermons, and everything is there. Uh, so welcome this morning, and I'll give you a few announcements. They'll pop up on your screen. Keep praying for our global workers, our missionaries. These are our hands extended around the world. Don and Marie-José, uh, who are doing leadership training globally, I've kept up to date with them. And a uh, good thing, it, reach out to them so that you can get on their mailing list, and that's a good way to keep up to date. Uh, they're quite busy writing content and having it translated into several different languages, and Marie-José is uh, busy also with the Chitenge School um, I forget what nation in Africa, but this is micro-business management and so on, so she's quite busy there as well. Um, and helping to run things, uh, you know, from a distance and oversight and all of that. And pray for the Charbonneaux as well, who are in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And uh, they've got a new update, I think, there on their Facebook page. And our newest, EJ Toupe, who is in urban Toronto. Okay, remember uh, Wednesday night? Boy, we're having fun with this video Bible study. Uh, wow, there's really about 15 people on the call now. Uh, so it's really good, uh, 7 to 8 p.m. Uh, the theme is a clash of kingdoms, and uh, this is looking into things in the book of Acts and uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Really interesting because it's talking about this clash of kingdoms that takes place when you try and live Christianly in a non-Christian world. What's that look like? Remember, tomorrow night at 7, we do a half-hour live broadcast of your questions and tomorrow we'll be talking about speaking in tongues. What in the world is that? Real strange thing there, it seems. And so I'm going to answer that question tomorrow night. And if you want to go deeper, you can join our discipleship group. Got about half a dozen, I think, or seven people uh, in that group. And I challenge them, give them homework, give them things to do, give them things to pray about. Um, uh, I'll give you something to do that I gave to them, all right? Uh, this is the season in some Christian traditions called Lent, which is the 40 days leading up to Easter Saturday, I think, is when Lent ends. And it's always a good time to get into the Gospels and the life of Jesus, and we're going to do that in the month of March. But I'll give you a little, a little uh, Lent uh, challenge, and the discipleship group has this challenge already, and I'm expecting them actually to write a report on it, but you don't have to write a report on it. Uh, but uh, I want you to watch a series online. Uh, you can stream it to your Apple or your Android device. I think it'll work on your streaming television stuff as well, and it's called The Chosen. It is a television series, I suppose, but it's streamed. Um, and uh, there's eight parts to the first season. They are shooting the second season now. It's entirely crowdfunded. Um, this has to be, I would say, the best uh, uh, contemporary telling of the story of Jesus that I have ever seen. I think I cried in every episode. I cannot believe how good it is and also how shareable it is even with people who are not Christian at all. You could share this with them and ask their opinion and not be embarrassed. It's that good. Uh, it's very contemporary. It's creative. It's compelling. Uh, it's short. 
Um, and you, you should watch it, all right? I would suggest you watch one or two episodes a week if you can hold on. Some of you want to probably want to binge watch it. I'm telling you, it's actually that good uh, for something that's crowdfunded, very well produced, and very engaging with the characters that they develop and all of that. So The Chosen, it's an app. You have to download it to your device, and you can stream it to your device for free. It's a little homework for you. And uh, thank you for your generosity. As always, you do that on our website. Click the Give button, and that is through PayPal, or you can do e-transfers as well now, okay? So we're in part seven of this series, When You Pray. Uh, you can catch up on all the other ones on our website uh, or Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, YouTube. It's all there. And today's part seven. I want to talk to you about what happens when you pray and you doubt. <laughs> you pray and you have doubts. Uh, that's the reality of life when people try, actually try to pray and to pray consistently. They struggle with doubt. Now, you may say, oh, pastor, I've never doubted in my life and all that. Well, you could say that if you want. But I think if I sat down with you and talked with you for a little while, I would discover that you doubt. Everybody doubts. The problem with doubt in church circles is that doubt is often frowned upon. And doubt is often viewed as, oh, boy, he, the person has so much doubt and so much unbelief. And people sort of privately struggle with this in churches, and they feel like there's something wrong with them if they doubt, even though they're trying, and they're trying to, you know, pray and grow their walk with God and all that. But they doubt, and they struggle with doubt, and it's, it's so frowned upon uh, that people sort of privately deal with it and conceal it. Well, I want to bring it into the light today because it's a reality and something that all of us experience, but we can still grow even though we have doubts. So I want to talk to you when you pray and you have doubts, what do you do? Uh, because most of us do. And so uh, to do that, I want to take you to a story in the book of Acts. We'll put the reference on the screen there for you. Uh, we've been in the book of Acts here in our little examination of prayer over the last few weeks, and this is Acts chapter 12. This is a really strange story. Um, it has all the earmarks of a real story. It has some humor in it uh, as well, but it's all over the place. And uh, this is from Acts chapter 12. It's got a uh, persecution in it. Um, a miraculous jailbreak, uh, the people praying for the jailbreak, it happens, but they don't believe it happens while it's happening. It's really all over the place. So I'm just going to read this thing to you, and uh, we'll learn some uh, things about doubt from this story, all right? So Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them, full stop. Um, this King Herod would be Herod Agrippa I. Uh, we know this because we can do a little study of the history of the time. There are several Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, a Herod, the Herods were a family, um, but it, they, they all had different names. So think of the term Herod like sheriff or president or something like that, all right? So this particular Herod is Agrippa I, who reigned from 41 to 44 A.D., and uh, this Herod was a client king for Rome. He's kind of uh, taken over for Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman prefect. And then they put a Herod in there, uh, and his job was to keep the peace. This particular Herod reigned over Jerusalem, the city, which was a hotbed for all things. But this new movement of Jesus followers had started from there. And so uh, Herod Agrippa I is going to lower the boom here in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1 because this new movement is causing quite a stir and there is a segment of the Jewish population that's very upset. And we've been looking at this over the last few weeks. Uh, they're very upset with what's going on. 
They do not like this preaching about Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and you've got controversy. You've got uh, Paul, we looked at, who was persecuting the church violently. Uh, so this caused quite a stir within Judaism. Yes, you had many Jews who followed Jesus, but you also had many who opposed this movement and opposed it at times violently. So it continues to be largely within Judaism that all this is going on, although we did see last week the introduction of Cornelius and the Gentile world and so on. So uh, here we go, and he's lowered the boom on the church because he wants to bring peace. He wants to bring calmness, especially the Sadducees who control the temple, uh, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Jesus had stirred everything up, and you've got a big controversy happening here, and big crowds and people turning to this new way, and you know people are going to lose their power. They're going to lose their religious authority. Maybe God's going to come and judge us now because this Jesus is an imposter. He's a false teacher, and so Herod Agrippa I is going to try and deal with this using, using violence here. Verse 12, uh, 2, he has James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. This would be James Zebedee, the brother of John Zebedee. Uh, this is the first of the apostles, of the 12, who is executed for their faith. All of them eventually would uh, lose their lives for what they believed. And when he saw, that's Herod Agrippa I, saw that this pleased the Jews, again, not all Jews, but this particular segment of Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So if he can get Peter and shut him up, maybe he can squash this new movement, calm everything down. This happened during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Passover. It was seven days uh, a celebration that took place there. So he arrests Peter. He puts Peter in prison. And get, get this, he hands him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, 16 guys guarding Peter because he was so influential in that time, and he had people following him in that time. They didn't want any funny business. Agrippa is taking no chances. And so his, his um, uh, game is to keep uh, uh, Peter in prison for a week, take him out um, for public trial, and, and hopefully execution after the Passover is over, but not during the feast, Let everybody, lest everyone freak out. So verse 5, Peter is kept in prison. And the church, we're told, was earnestly praying to God for him, presumably for him to be somehow delivered from the prison. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, so the Passover feast is, is ending, it's day 6, Herod's going to bring him out, put him on trial, hopefully get him executed. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. So uh, they're taking no chances with him, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, verse 7, an angel of the Lord appears, and a light shone in the cell. This is almost exactly like the way uh, we see the wording in Christmas. The angel of the Lord shone around them in the glory of God, and so on. When the angel appeared to the shepherd, and then the great company of the heavenly hosts appeared to the shepherds, the same almost exact wording here that Luke uses in verse 7. Angel of the Lord comes and the, the, lights up the place. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Pop! Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. The angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him, and Peter did so, and he follows him out of the prison. But he has no idea, we're told, what the angel was doing uh, was really happening. He thought he was kind of dreaming or in a vision or something. It's really bizarre, almost like everything else is frozen, and, and Peter is escorted out by this angelic figure while everyone else is sort of out of it. It's really strange. He thought that he was seeing some kind of vision. So they pass through the first and the second guards, and they come to the iron gate leading to the city, and he's going to get out. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it, 
And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Wow. Peter comes to himself, verse 11, and he says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating I got out. When this had dawned on him, verse 12, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. Mark is the Mark who wrote the book of Mark. So he goes to Mark's mother's house where many people had gathered and were praying. This is the group of people that were praying earnestly for a week for Peter to get out of prison somehow. And Peter knocks on the door. Knock, 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 knock. And a servant girl named Rhoda comes to answer the door. You got to see the humor here. Um, And she recognizes Peter's voice at the door. And we're told, verse 14, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. (laughs) Why didn't she open the door? She hears his voice. She runs back to the prayer meeting. She says, Peter's at the door. Verse 15, the reply from this group of people earnestly praying for Peter's deliverance. You're out of your mind, they told her. And she keeps on insisting. Hey, listen, I heard his voice. Peter's at the door. She didn't open the door, but (laughs) she heard his voice. And they say, no, it must be his angel. What a statement. I mean, they, they did have a belief in that day that people had these kind of guardian angels, uh, we see this in the Apocrypha. Um, we see this also is hinted at perhaps in something that Jesus said. And so they think, well, okay, maybe it, maybe the Rhoda is, it's, it's Peter's angel is at the door. Well, you would at least open the door, wouldn't you? So Peter keeps on knocking, you know, knock, 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 knock. I'm here, I'm here. No one's opening yet. And uh, so they open the door finally, and they saw him, and there are astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. So he's saying, stop panicking, you know, sort of shut up and be quiet. And he describes how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he says, tell James. James is the, is the uh, half-brother of Jesus. He's the kind of chief guy there in the city of Jerusalem, who's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion. The soldiers, among the soldiers, as to what had become of Peter. He gets out from 16 guards. He was chained to two guys in the middle of the night. (laughs) They wake up, and he's gone from the chains. They are in serious, serious trouble, which you will see. After Herod had a thorough search made for him, and he did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Some translations leave that little part out there, but it's conceivable that these guards lost their lives. That was the penalty for Roman guards when someone fell asleep at their post uh, and and, uh, a prisoner escaped as a result. Uh, In any case, that's the story, and there's some things that you can learn from this story about praying and doubting at the same time. The story is remarkable in that Peter gets out miraculously, but James loses his life. Why? Why does James die so matter-of-factly in verse 2? And yet, through the rest of the account, Peter gets out miraculously, supernaturally, if we're to believe this. Why is it that one escapes and one doesn't? We don't know but is very similar uh, to life in general. Sometimes we don't have answers to these questions. Uh, in any case, three things that we can learn from this. Uh, when, when you doubt, when you're praying for things, and you're doubting and you're struggling and you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the, the ceiling and you sort of feel like this is no use, you know, I don't even know if I have any faith anymore. Three, three things you can do. Number one, and we'll put these on the screen, be sincere. Be sincere. Some of us, we come to God and we lie about our doubt. We're doubting all the time, and we're struggling with it, but we don't tell God because we think that if we tell God, then he's just not even going to answer our prayers. He's not even going to want to listen to us. Um, While doubt is certainly not praised in the Scripture, 
while Jesus at times uh, criticizes people and chastises people for their doubt, which we'll see in a moment, it, sincerity is not ignored by God. It is not ignored by Jesus. So well, while doubt is certainly not encouraged by the Bible, uh, sincerity is not ignored. And when people are sincere with God about their doubt, he actually listens to them, and he actually does something about it. It's amazing these people are praying for Peter to be delivered, and when Peter shows up at the door, they don't believe it. They'll believe anything else. They'll believe it's his angel. I mean, th but they won't believe that it actually could be Peter. And yet that's what they're praying for. And they will not take the word of this girl who just simply reports the truth back to the prayer meeting. They can't believe it. I mean, they're dealing with doubt, and they've been praying for this guy to get out f for a week. And they're still dealing with doubt underneath the surface of this story here. Um, be sincere when you're dealing with doubt. Bring your doubt to God. Uh, don't don't uh, withhold it. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend that it isn't there, but be sincere about it. An example of this you can find um, in the book of Mark. I put the reference on your screen there. Uh, a really dramatic story of a boy who has some kind of demonic intrusion problem. And when this happens to him, he reacts uh, physically. He froths at the mouth. He has seizures. He's uncontrollable. He throws himself into the fire. Uh, and it just seems to come upon him here and there. And we're told in the narrative that this is not, you know, some medical issue. It's not epilepsy or something. But it's we're told that this seems to be an actual demonic issue that's taking place here. And uh, an argument ensues in a crowd of people dealing with this issue because the disciples are trying to deal with this thing on their own and nothing's working. And so this man in the crowd says, uh, Mark chapter 9, Teacher, I brought to you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. And he foams at the mouth and he gnashes his teeth and he becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You say, well, they're mistaken. This isn't a spiritual issue. This is epilepsy. They're too naive to know what epilepsy is in that day. Well, you could say that if you want, but Jesus seems to acknowledge that this is a spiritual issue, not a medical issue. So I take my cues from him on this. Oh, unbelieving generation. Whew, that sounds like a criticism. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. All right, he's criticizing but he's not casting them away because they're being sincere here. And this man who has this son who has this problem is being very sincere. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it reacts. It immediately threw the boy into a convulsion and he hits the ground, rolls around foaming at the mouth. And so Jesus says to the boy's father, how long has he been like this? The father answers from childhood has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus' reply, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help, my, help me overcome my unbelief. You see the sincerity there? So he's, he's admitting his struggle with faith. Jesus is being critical of the doubt here and the disbelief here, not only by the Father, but by his own followers. But Jesus doesn't cast the boy away. He doesn't cast the man away. Immediately, the boy's father utters this statement, and Jesus sees that a crowd is running to the scene. It says he rebuked the evil spirit, and he says this, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Spirit, we're told, shrieks, convulsed him, violently comes out, and the boy looks like he's dead. And the crowd says, he's dead. And Jesus takes him by the hand, lifts him up to his feet, and he stands up, and he's fine. Afterwards, the disciples ask him, well, how come we couldn't fix this problem? How come we couldn't drive out this spirit? 
And Jesus replies famously, this, this kind can come out only by prayer and fasting. So many things can be said about the story, but the one that is relevant for us today, note the sincerity in the Father. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus heals the boy, not without making a comment about faith, but he heals the boy. When you're praying and when you're doubting, be sincere. Don't lie about it. Be sincere about it. God can handle your doubt. God's not going to say, oh, well, you know, you're a doubter, so just I don't even want to see your face. I don't even want to hear your prayers. You're such a doubter. You know, anyone who comes to me has to come to me by faith and has to believe that I exist. And he who doubts is like someone who's blown around like the wind and so on. And Jesus doesn't do this. Yes, he will discourage doubt. Yes, he will challenge doubt. But he will never cast away sincere doubt people. So number one, be sincere. Number two, and all these have an ear in them, so maybe you can remember them. Number two, you need to persevere when you have doubt. So verse five of the thing in the book of Acts, the narrative from the book of Acts, the church was praying earnestly. They were persevering. Six days they're praying. Even when Peter shows up at the door, they don't believe that it's him, but they certainly were a perseverant group. They kept on going. They kept on persevering. It's interesting. There's a there's a, a big news this week. Perseverance is on Mars. If you're following the news there and perseverance is taking pictures, magnificent pictures of places on Mars that haven't been photographed before. Uh, I like the title of this uh, uh, machine, whatever it's called, perseverance, right? You keep on keeping on. When you doubt Pray through your doubt. Keep on, don't let your doubt make you quit praying, but keep on praying through it. You think you're the first person who's ever doubted God before? Of course not. And you see plenty of people doubt God in the scripture. Keep on praying through your doubt without quitting. A great little passage from James chapter 5. I'll put it on the screen for you there, the reference, verses 17 and 18. Half-brother of Jesus, this is the guy mentioned in Acts chapter 12 uh, as well, at the end of what we had read there. And James wrote a, a book in the New Testament. This is what he says at the end of his book about prayer. Elijah, guy from the book of Kings, was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. That's some drought. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. If you actually go and read the actual story from 1 Kings, it's from 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. You can read, read it on your own, but it is some wild story. And in this story, you see the famous confrontation between Elijah and the hundreds of prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. And these sacrifices are put on the ground, and Elijah sets up a challenge on Mount Carmel I think it's Mount Carmel, and he says, uh, look, the God who answers by fire is the real God. Let's see which, which of your gods is real, or if my God is real, but enough of this uh, meandering about. We're going to have a showdown here, and we lay down these sacrifices, and when fire comes out of the sky, that's how we know whose God is the real God. <laughs> it's some crazy story, and this is a very, very heightened moment of it's a very violent time. You've got Ahab's wife who enjoys uh, sadistically slaughtering prophets. Uh, you, have a, you have a very, very trying time there, and Elijah is the man of the hour. He sets up this confrontation, and you can read about it again, 1 Kings 17. First, he had stopped the, the, the rain from coming, and then in 1 Kings chapter 18, the rain is going to come back. Uh, these people worshipped Baal, the storm god, a weather god, and it's confrontation after confrontation. 
a very violent time as well. And you see that the fire comes and burns up Elijah's sacrifice after he prays a really short prayer, burns up the water, everything. And uh, the the false prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, their lives are taken and all of this. And then Elijah, he turns around and he says to the king Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 18, he says, you better go and eat and drink for there is a sound of a heavy rain is going to come. Had rain for three and a half years. And so Ahab goes off to eat and drink because he just saw the real deal happen right before his eyes. And Elijah, there's, no, there's not a cloud in the sky. And he makes this statement that it's going to rain. Watch what Elijah does. He climbs to the top of the mountain. And he bends down to the ground and he puts his face between his knees. Uncomfortable posture. And he tells his servant, go and look toward the sea. At least he understood the hydrological cycle, right? If you want a cloud, it's going to come from the sea. It's going to form a cloud. That's hydrology. At least Elijah seems to have understood that. And so he says, you go and you look toward the sea. And so he goes and he looks. And the servant comes back to Elijah, who had just told King Ahab that the rain is going to come. And the servant says to Elijah, he says, uh, there's nothing there. And so Elijah says, you go back. And he went back and back and back. And we're told seven times he had to send this guy back to go and look. And meanwhile, Elijah's got bent over with his head between his knees, presumably praying earnestly that it would rain. Hmm. I wonder if he struggled with some doubt. He goes, I mean, the servant comes back, uh, Elijah, you sure you heard from God? There's nothing there. There's no rain there. You realize what ha- what's going to happen, Elijah, if you're wrong? Go back and look at this sea. Go back and look at this sea. Go back and look at this sea. Seven times. Go back and look at this sea. We're not told how long it took this whole ordeal. And then he comes back the seventh time. He says, Elijah, I got good news for you. There is a cloud, a small cloud, small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Hydrological uh, cycle is working, Elijah. Uh, he probably held up his hand at the sky like this, and he says, hey, there's a little cloud coming up from the sea. And so Elijah knows at this point God is on the move. His prayer has been answered. And so he turns to Ahab and he says, you better hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And the sky grows black with clouds, you know, this dramatic moment. And the wind starts blowing and the rain pours down, right? Well, I mean, the backdrop of the story is he had to persevere in prayer. Didn't just happen like that. And we're talking about Elijah. This guy did some of the most bizarre and powerful, miraculous things that you will ever see in the Bible. Uh, another little little example of perseverance, this is from Jesus. And he tells this, this little story uh, in Luke chapter 18. Again, the, the, the object is don't quit. You're going to doubt, doubt. But don't let your doubt make you quit. And so Jesus says, Luke chapter 18, it's only there. He's going to tell his disciples a little story so that they will pray and not give up. Uh, Luke 18 verse 1. So he tells this little story and he says, look, in a certain town, there's a judge and he's a bad guy. He doesn't like he doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about people. And yet he's a judge. And there was a widow in that town who keeps going to this judge over and over again. Grant me justice against my adversary. Maybe there's somebody trying to extort money from her. We don't know. But she's a widow. She's not well off at all. Widows were at the bottom of the barrel in that uh, culture in that time. And so this this persistent widow is going to this corrupt judge over and over and over and over. Grant me justice. Verse four, for some time he refused. Again, he doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about people. But finally, he says to himself, even though I don't fear God, I don't care about men. Yet because this widow keeps on bothering me, she is persistent. She is 
earnest because she keeps bothering me. I will see that she gets justice just so she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. She's bothering me so much. And so Jesus says, look, that's what an unjust judge says. So he says, look, God is not like that at all. God is, well, what's going to happen when people cry out to God for justice? Will he keep putting them off? Well, obviously not. He will see to it that they get justice and quickly. And then Jesus throws this little caveat at the end. When the Son of Man comes, presumably when he's going to deal out ultimate justice, will he find faith on the earth? Again, that tension between prayer and doubt, prayer and unbelief. But this widow, she teaches us a great lesson, just like this group of people in Acts chapter 12. They prayed earnestly. They kept on praying. They persevered. They don't let your doubt make you quit praying. And a lot of times we doubt so much that we say, ah, what's the use? And we just quit Uh, Number three, the final little tip here, do not fear. So be sincere, persevere, and finally, do not fear. God is not going to hurt you for doubting him. He's not going to hurt you. He may chastise you a little bit. He He may challenge your doubt a little bit, but he's not going to hurt you when you doubt him. And some of you, you think that. You think God's going to throw a lightning bolt at you because you doubted him. No, you're not going to find one example where God hurts somebody because they sincerely doubt him. They're seeking him. They're trying. They're persevering, but they're still struggling with doubt. You're not going to see God hurt such a person anywhere in the scripture, and he doesn't to this group in Acts chapter 12 either. He doesn't hurt them. Uh, He doesn't somehow renege and put Peter miraculously back in prison because this group laughed when when Rhoda comes, you know, with the report, uh, Peter's at the door, and they laugh. They say, it's impossible. It's got to be his angel. You know, they say, you don't know what you're talking about. You're out of your mind when you're saying these things. Well, God doesn't reverse the decision. God doesn't change it because of their doubt. He doesn't hurt them because of their doubt. You've got to overcome your fear of doubting. Sometimes when you're sincere and you press through and you persevere through that doubt, God can use that doubt to do incredible things. Great example of this from John's gospel, uh, chapter 20, the most famous doubter of all. His name is Thomas, uh, sometimes known and known to people as Doubting Thomas, one of the disciples uh, who's not talked about too much in the Gospels until the resurrection of Jesus, John chapter 20. So Thomas, he's one of the 12. Uh, he, he, he sets up this um, challenge, if you will. They're talking to him about, you know, seeing the resurrected Jesus, and Thomas puts this out before them. Jesus is not there at this time. And Thomas says this, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into, into his side, I will not believe it. Now, that's a pretty serious challenge. Like that's, you know, if you're going to call someone a doubter, uh, you know, you, you probably got good grounds to call him a doubter. I mean, he's setting up a challenge that's something else. I mean, imagine he, he wants to put, he, they're talking about Jesus being physically raised from the dead. He was dead, and now he's alive. Thomas is saying, I want to put my hand into where that nail went. That'll prove it for sure, won't it? I want to put my hand into his body, into the side where the spear went in John chapter 19, John chapter 20, his execution. I want to put my hand in there. If I can put my hand in there, I'll believe it. Otherwise, nope. Wow, he's, he's, that's some big challenge. A week later, the disciples were in the house again. Thomas is with them. 
the doors are locked. Jesus comes into the room. We're not sure how the doors are locked. He says, peace be with you. He turns and he says to Thomas, probably rather tongue-in-cheek, Thomas, put your finger in here in my hands. Thomas, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Doesn't hurt Thomas for his doubt. He seems to know what Thomas said, even though he wasn't in the room when Thomas said it. It's as if he can read his mind or something. And he says, stop doubting and believe. Now look what Thomas does. Notice, Jesus doesn't hurt him. Jesus doesn't condemn him. He tells him to stop doubting. He tells him to believe. Watch. You won't see this by anybody else in the scripture. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. He doesn't say, my Lord and my God, looking up to the sky. No, he looks at Jesus and he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. I remember having a debate with a Muslim uh, gentleman. And he says, oh, geez, the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God. The New Testament doesn't teach that Jesus is God. That's not true. Jesus is not God. Jesus is not God. And I told him, well, what do you make of this statement? And he said, well, you know, he didn't say that to Jesus. What he did was he said to Jesus, he looked at Jesus, he said, my Lord, and then he went, my God. <laughs> and I said to the guy, but it says, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. What's Jesus' reaction? He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He commends Thomas for his faith, even though he was a doubter. He commends Thomas for acknowledging that, he, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He, he calls him God. Nobody does it that directly as Thomas. You see how God uses his moment of doubt even to put this powerful thing out for us to see. Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who've believed and have not seen. So be sincere. You've got problems with doubt. Be sincere with your problems. Number two, you keep going. You don't quit even though you're doubting. And number three, don't fear God. He's not going to hurt you uh, because you're doubting. He may well bring you to a breakthrough at the end of the other side. All right. Uh, so I'm just going to finish up here and pray for you. And we'll call the band back and uh, we'll do that song uh, the first song, your grace is enough. Thank God for his grace, right? He gives us what we don't deserve, even though we doubt him sometimes. Uh, so, God, uh, we just come to you. And, um, uh, Lord, even with all of our questions and all of our concerns and all of our, our doubts and all of our unbelief, uh, Lord, we're so thankful for the, the, the man in the in the Gospels, who said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. We're so thankful for people like Thomas, uh, Lord, who set that challenge up, and you didn't cast him away, and you didn't throw him out. Uh, we're so thankful for this group we see in the book of Acts, who even in their disbelief, they, they saw in, an incredible thing take place. And and so, Lord, we ask that in, in our lives, uh, in the 21st century, uh, you would do the same thing. You would, you would work in our lives and take us as we are with all of our, our questions, all of our fears, all of our doubts, and you would just help us to push through and to see you do remarkable things, even in our lives, even today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. 
you wrestle with the sinner's restless heart and you lead us by still waters into mercy and nothing can keep us apart so remember your people remember your children remember your promise oh god oh god and your grace is enough your grace is enough your grace is enough for me grace is enough for me great is your love and justice God of Jacob you use the weak to lead the strong and you lead us in the song of your salvation and all your people sing along so remember your people remember your children remember your promise oh God Oh God, and your grace is enough, your grace is enough, your grace is enough for me, yeah, your grace is enough, heaven reaches out to us, your grace is enough for me God I sing your grace is enough I am covered in your love your grace is enough for me God I sing your grace is enough I am covered in your love your grace is enough for me for me amen amen well god bless you today thank you so much for joining with us i'll leave the band on to jam as they choose and we'll cut the stream at some point i'll remind you that tomorrow night uh 7 p.m we're going to talk about speaking in tongues what in the world is that join us at 7 p.m live with your questions as well i'll take them on the fly so i look forward to seeing you god bless you enjoy the band